Please take a seat. We've got two readings today. The first comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then the second one is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for these dogs, these men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a very good morning to you folks. Dragged off the bench again. <laughs> it will cost a lot of people, this will. There we go. One of the great things about uh, being retired, actually, is uh, when you get asked to preach, is you can preach on your favourite verses. And uh, this morning's verses, um, which we're looking at, and we are, we're only looking at... Um, uh, that Romans, uh, the reading from Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But you can choose your favorite verses, and this is one of my favorite verses, of course. There's about another 998, which are my favorites, but there we go. This is a wonderful verse. Uh, the other thing is, uh, we can't go into all of these two verses this morning, because otherwise we'd be here till about 5 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, but there's so much in here, but I'm just going to sort of Touch the surface if you like. So if you've got your Bibles open, we're looking at those verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I encourage you all to, to go home and have a look at that in, in all its context. It's a wonderful uh, part of the, uh, the Scriptures. Well, let me pray. May the words of my lips and the thoughts and meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord God, our Creator and Redeemer. Amen. Well, you can see Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why does Paul say that? Well, uh, probably because Christians can be 
ashamed of the gospel, or at least embarrassed by the gospel. Why? Well, one reason in our culture, I would say, is a fear of seeming to be not to be intellectual, not to be sort of clever. The gospel isn't some great intellectual philosophical concept. You don't have to be an academic to understand the gospel. You don't have to be some religious guru. You don't have to be somebody who seems to be very deep in spiritual issues and all this kind of stuff. You don't have to do that. It doesn't require masses of study about human behavior and psychology or interest in theories of how life started. If you speak to people today in our society, they're always willing to listen to great philosophers or theories on human psychology and intellectual ideas about life and the universe. And they're always interested to discuss things, what they call the concepts of God, or who is God, or whatever. They're always willing to talk about that. But when you talk about Jesus, a common carpenter, who was the Son of God, who died on a cross for our sins, but he rose again, and that through him we can know God and have eternal life forever, and be with God. Well, that seems a bit simplistic, really. A bit crude, even, that he should die on a cross. There's nothing deeply philosophical about that or intellectual about that. And we often don't want to appear unintelligent or unthinking or unacademic or simple or even worse. We don't want to be appear, we don't want to appear to be deluded or brainwashed. And so we can often feel intimidated or at least embarrassed that we believe the simple gospel. But Paul says he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Oh, Paul would know the temptation of that. Paul was an intellectual. Somebody has said that by the age of, has worked out that by the time he was 21, he had the equivalent of three PhDs or whatever you call it, doctors or whatever you call it. Paul was an intellectual. He was an academic And he probably knew when he talked to other academics and philosophers about the simple gospel and this crude gospel that it would be ridiculed. He knew that. A carpenter, the son of God, dying on a cross for the sins of the world because we're all sinners. Well, what foolishness is that? Paul, like most academics, didn't like to feel intellectually silly. Of course he wouldn't. Or as if he'd been brainwashed. Of course he wouldn't. So he knew the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, but he wasn't ashamed. Why? Well, I think, it's only my personal opinion, but I I think it's because Paul, more than any human individual, really understood the gospel. Really understood it. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he gives the heart of the gospel and therefore why he's not ashamed of it. Well, let's look at it. He says first, he's not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. What does that mean? Well, very simply, we have all offended God. That's what it means. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one who is righteous, no, one, no, no, not one. There is nobody who seeks God. All have turned away from God. All. Every human being. Every human being has offended God and walked away from God. Most people these days don't care that God exists, nor that he created them. Some people, even many in this culture like ours, want to get rid of God. I read in the Auckland Herald a couple of years ago that some want the national anthem changed because it talks about God, this entity which they don't know, so they want to change it. There's an anti-feeling about it. 
But even those who do believe in God offend God. We break God's laws consistently. We manipulate people. We try to live self-centered lives. We don't want God as we should. The Bible says that we should love God with all our hearts, but we don't want to love God. We want to do our own thing in life, and that deserves God's judgment, not his love. But the gospel is the power of God for saving us from our offense against God. That's what the gospel is about. The gospel gives us the power, the ability to love God. It gives us that ability and therefore to be with him forever. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And Paul is not ashamed to preach that. Who should be? Who should be ashamed of preaching that? Paul then goes on to say how the gospel saves people. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse 17, because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness from God is revealed. Now that verse, of course, is the heart of the gospel. And it's really, amongst other things, but that is really what began the Reformation. It was understanding this term, the righteousness of God, which God used to change the life of Martin Luther, through whom God really began the Reformation. Let me briefly explain what happened to Luther And then you'll understand why it's the heart of the gospel from which everything else springs. If you understand this, you'll understand the gospel. Martin Luther was brought up in the spiritual darkness of 15th century medieval Christianity. He was brought up in the most extreme abuses of what we would call Roman Catholicism. He was brought up when the gospel had been lost in a maze of Ritual and tradition and indulgences and penances where Christianity was, if you do this penance, if you pay this indulgence, if you say these certain prayers, if you go to confession and mass and don't do things on a certain day, if you fast each Friday and say the rosary so many times times a day, only if you do these things is God pleased with you. And only if you do these things will you be forgiven and live with God forever. There were certain penances for little sins, and there were big penances for big ones. Even as a young boy, I was brought up under the Roman Catholic system, and that was what you saw. There were two types of sins. One was mortal sin, which was very serious. The other was venial sin. And you had to be careful of those. And God was seen as a harsh punishment giver, sort of. And you did all these things to appease God for yourself, uh, to, to appease God for your sins in Luther's day. That's what it was like. So God and the true gospel was obscured. It was lost in this maze of stuff and superstition. One could never be assured that one was truly forgiven. One could never be assured that God loved and accepted you. It was all about doing stuff. That's what Martin Luther grew up with. Now Luther was clever. He was an academic and he was a trained lawyer. But he was also a monk whose sharp mind understood theology. And Luther rightly understood that a holy God, totally righteous, could never allow anything or anyone unholy in his presence. So any person with the least sin upon him could never be right with God. Luther knew that God was totally righteous. 
And so for anybody to be accepted by God or come into his presence in this life or in eternity, a person must be holy as God is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Be holy as I am holy. Only the righteous will see God. Now Luther's dilemma was this. He looked at this verse, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, and he thought that it meant that in the gospel God shows more of how righteous he is, how, whole, how much more holy he is. In the Old Testament, God showed how righteous he was by the Ten Commandments. So we've got to believe, so we've got to live up to that standard of righteousness. We mustn't put anything before God. He is our creator. He created us. We mustn't tell lies. We mustn't steal. We mustn't commit adultery. We mustn't covet. Well, Luther couldn't achieve that. And now he thought that God in the gospel was showing us more of his righteousness in Jesus. We must be poor in spirit. That is, not just outwardly righteous, but pure inside. Never mind murder, even if I get angry with somebody, I've sinned. Never mind adultery, even if I look at a woman lustfully, I have sinned. If my motives are not pure, I have sinned. The bar had been raised enormously. Well, Luther knew that he couldn't do that. He couldn't obey God fully outwardly. Never mind be pure inside. It was impossible. He tried. For years he disciplined his life in the monastery. He fasted, he prayed, he isolated himself. All to achieve the righteousness which he thought that God required. And which in fact God did require. But Luther couldn't do it. And as time went on he despaired. And the New Testament, Jesus, the gospel, instead of helping Luther, it made matters worse. Because Luther thought... That this verse, Romans chapter 1 verse 17, meant that more of God's righteousness had been revealed. In the Old Testament, some of God's righteousness had been revealed, so he couldn't live up to that. But in the gospel, more. And so he had more to live up to. And Luther came to hate that term, the righteousness of God. Because it meant for Luther only despair and frustration God was there to frustrate him. God was there to punish Christians who wouldn't live that life. And so he was living a life of guilt. And so he detested that term. And then one day, while preparing lectures on Romans, God incredibly opened Luther's eyes to what it really meant. It didn't mean that in the gospel, God reveals more of his righteousness. Well, it could mean that. But it didn't mean that. It means in the gospel, God has provided his own righteousness for sinful people. We can never be whole enough to stand in the presence of God. Never. We cannot not sin. We can never be righteous before a righteous God. Job asked the question 3,000 years ago, how can a man be just righteous before God? He can't. To do that, he needs God's righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying here, which Luther suddenly understood. 
You see, to be righteous here, in this context, simply means to be in a right position. And the picture is of a stick standing up straight, standing absolutely upright. And Paul is speaking of our standing straight in a right relationship with God, a right standing before God. With sin on you, you cannot be in a right standing before God. You can't be in a right relationship with him. So in the gospel, God gives you the righteousness which is required. That is his righteousness. You can't achieve that standing on your own. For example, you can't achieve it by doing lots of good things in life. That's very good, but you can't achieve it with that. Or even you can't achieve it as Luther tried, living in a monastery. You can't achieve it by doing lots of sort of religious-y things. Going to church or, or taking the sacraments or confession, etc., etc. Those are, good, again, good things. But you can't achieve it through those things. That's what Luther did. That's what he tried. And so did Paul. Before the gospel came to Paul, that's exactly what he did. You just heard the reading from Philippians. Go home and read it when you, when you go home. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about his life before he became a Christian. He explained that he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's one of the top Pharisees, he said. He obeyed the law diligently. He was circumcised. He came from the right tribe in Israel. He did all the stuff in the temple. He fasted. He prayed, all those things. But he says in verse 9, listen. I was trying to establish a righteousness of my own by obeying the law. But now, he says, I have a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. And listen, the righteousness that comes from God that doesn't depend on good works, but depends on faith. You see, the problem was this. You and I could never obey God and keep his law fully. Yet if we don't, if we sin just once, we cannot stand in his presence ever. We must be holy as I am holy. We must be perfect, Jesus said, as my Father in heaven is perfect. You remember Jay asking that provocative question one, I think it was last year when he preached the sermon, and he asked the question, do you have to be perfect to go to heaven? And we all thought, oh, no, no, no. And he said, yes, you do. Be perfect as I am perfect. That's what Jesus said. That is the standard. But we can't do it. What we must do to be right with God, we can't do it. What was God's solution to that problem? It was twofold. One, Jesus would die for our sins. But two, Jesus also lived his life in total obedience to God. He lived in a right relationship with God. He was fully righteous. Well, in the gospel, God gives us that righteousness that Jesus lived. So that when God looks at you, he sees you, but through Christ, totally righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Don't turn to it. Listen, listen. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Do you see why Luther changed? Do you see what? Can you imagine him in his study that day? Can you imagine that? It changed his whole Christian life. He saw the Bible, Christianity, God, Jesus in a completely different light. His Christian life was no longer guilt-ridden, penances, all the stuff of trying to please God. God loved Luther now. Now as he stood. And he loved him because through faith in Christ, God no longer saw Luther, but Christ in Luther. Righteous. And if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, that is you. It is you now. But you say to me, oh, I still sin. Yes. But I still fail. Yes. I let God down. You're right. I try to do this. I try to do that to please God. But I fail. You're right. He can't possibly love me. Wrong. Wrong. If you believe in Christ, God has made you righteous. And it doesn't matter that you fail. Of course you fail. You are still in a right relationship with God. You are therefore righteous. He has made you righteous. And, one further thing, it is a legal standing. Paul here is speaking like in a a court. It's legal standing. It can't be gone back on. It cannot change. That is, there is never a time when you're not in this right relationship with God. Yes, you may fall. Your faith may get weak. You may let God down, but the relationship itself will never, ever change. It's like my relationship with Rosemary. I'm married to her, and it is legal. She can't get out of it. She cannot. And I might sin against her. I might do her wrong. I might ignore her when I shouldn't. But I'm still her husband. And that will never change. We're still in that relationship. It is legal. So it is with you and God. He has given you his righteousness and that is forever. It will never change. Paul finishes very quickly. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What does that mean? Well, it's an assurance in a sense. Paul there is quoting the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. When Israel were going through trials because of many peoples, especially the leaders, unfaithfulness to God. Powerful people were exploiting the poor and the needy. There was corruption and immoral behavior by the leaders of Israel. And Habakkuk cries out to God, why, Lord? Why do evil men prosper and oppress the righteous? Why do you allow it? And God answers that they will be punished. How? The Chaldean army will come against them and they will defeat Israel and punish them. And then Habakkuk says, and and why will the Chaldeans then prosper after cruelty and oppression towards Israel? God answers back. He says that they will too, the Chaldeans also, eventually will be punished. In fact, all sinners will be punished. You may not see, see it, God says. You may not see it. You may not see it in this life. But a day will come when all will stand before God. And all sinners will be punished. And justice will come. But then he says, the righteous will live by faith. And God says to Habakkuk about the faithful, in the midst of all this sinful, wicked behavior, the righteous who truly love God will live by faith, trusting God. That's exactly what Paul means here. 
So it is with Christians today. When most people don't live for God, when they are unfaithful, they don't obey God or acknowledge God, when society puts God down, when society ridicules Christianity, you do the opposite. Christians do the opposite. When the world blames God for every catastrophe or disaster or every war, you continue to trust him. When all seems hopeless in the world, when there's terrorism and oppression and, and war in every, in every continent and COVID, etc., etc., and when God seems just to allow all these things, holding nobody accountable for these things, when there's no justice, when, when, when the godless seem to prosper and those who don't love God seem to have a great life and those who do love God, well, they go through difficult lives. He says the righteous will live by faith. Trusting God. You continue to trust God and live a life of faith through all those things. The righteous will live by faith. doesn't matter what we go through. It doesn't matter how anti-God this society becomes or even how unfaithful the church might become. The righteous still live by faith. I think that's a word in season for Christians in New Zealand Unwestern culture today. We are to live by faith. Well, is that you? Are you in a right relationship with God? Or are you still trying to please God in many other ways? Are you in that relationship with God? As a Christian, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you embarrassed by the gospel? There's no need. Because it's the power of God for salvation. And in it, a righteousness from God is revealed. Let me close by reading Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Don't turn to it, just listen. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, who to? To all who believe. To all who believe. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as your people, as our God, our Creator, and our salvation, we thank you for the wonder of your gospel. We thank you that you love us now. And there may be some people here this morning wondering that. I pray that you would show them once again that your love will never change. And we thank you for that. And help us, Father, we pray, to live this righteous life, to live a life of faith in all that goes around us. And let us show the love of Christ, the love that sent him to the cross and to the lonely, lonely road to Calvary. In our Lord's name we pray. Amen.